This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive, this is new, stickers or coffee mugs, depending on how much cold, hard cash you are willing to shell out. Howdy, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the show where I talk to the movers and the shakers in the Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. In today's show, we're going to talk about the case against Khabarovsk Governor Sergei Furgal, whom federal agents arrested on Thursday, July 9th, and promptly flew him to Moscow, where he was arraigned on charges that he organized violence, including several contract killings against business rivals in 2004 and 2005. The case is based on testimony from Fergal's alleged accomplices in the murders who were arrested earlier. On July 10th, a Moscow court placed Governor Fergal in pretrial detention until at least September 9th, while investigators build their case even more. I'm recording this on Saturday, July 11th, hours after tens of thousands of people just marched through the streets in downtown Khabarovsk, holding up signs and shouting slogans in support of Governor Fergal and against Moscow and even Putin. This rally took place two days after I recorded the interview you are about to hear. So please bear that in mind when listening to today's show, where my guest is Andras Toth Sifra, a political analyst based in New York and the author of the No Yardstick blog, where he's written for almost 10 years about Russian politics, often focusing on the country's more remote regions. He's been watching the Far East very closely, and he was kind enough to come on this podcast and chat about what's happening with Sergei Furgal. Why is this arrest? It's obviously different from the arrests of journalists and so on, but does it, is it different as well from the arrests of state officials? Does it stand out for reasons that... You could explain? Uh, well, look, I think that uh, if you are a state official in Russia, if you're a regional governor, if you're a, a government minister, if you're a head of a uh, government uh, institution, uh, there is a fair chance that the uh, FSB or another uh, law enforcement or security service will have something on you. Uh, you know, in fact, Karmelenia, right, like the principles of Karmelenia would dictate that you would be expected to enrich yourself and uh, you would be expected to have skeletons in the closet so that when you become dispensable, they can indeed uh, cut you off, cut you loose. So in that sense, if we don't know uh, whether the um, accusations against Sergei Frugal stand ground, there is a chance that they, that they are rooted in facts. Uh, if you think of the uh, LDPR's history, and the number of people with, let's say, dubious backgrounds that they have given the platform to from uh, Andrei Lugovoy, who was um, accused of uh, poisoning Litvinenko in London, to Sergei Mihailov, his uh, crime boss in uh, the late 90s. And uh, like you can even bring in Leon Yislowski, who uh, was a key figure in uh, Russia's relationship with the European far right. So uh, the LDPR does have shady figures and um do you think do you think do you think Fergal's ties to LDPR are the more kind of suspect or is it the fact that he was a businessman in like the lumber and scrap metal industry in the far east like i've seen that 
that seems to be the the thing that's touted most is like, oh, he probably did order people killed. Or do you think it's the LDPR connection? I, I, look, I, I don't. I'm I'm not suggesting that that an LDPR connection is uh, per se uh, <laughs> suspect, right? But uh, I'm just suggesting that the LDPR has a problematic history when it comes to when it comes to giving platform to people. Let's say when it comes to due diligence, if you are going to be nice to them. So we don't we don't know much about the case, right? Like we 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 know the accusations, we know the LDPR's history. We also know that this happens in Russia, and it is supposed to happen. What I think sets this um, case apart from similar cases in the past couple of years is that uh, Furgal won an election, a gubernatorial election, for the LDPR unexpected in 2018. In September 2018, in four Russian regions, the Primorsky Krai, the Khabarovsk Krai, the... Uh, the Vladimir Oblast and uh, the Republic of Khakassia, candidates fielded by so-called systemic opposition parties won over United Russia candidates. And uh, in all but one region, the Primorsky Krai, where Putin had personally endorsed the Kremlin's candidate, they were allowed to take office. But Furgal, if you remember, was... So the Kremlin had a different approach to these candidates. So obviously in the Primorsky Krai, they just invalidated the election and uh, then got a Kremlin guy elected. In Khabarovsk, Furgal was initially offered a way out, sort of, like way out of, a, of, of, a, of an election victory that seemed, seemed inevitable. The sitting governor offered him to serve as his deputy, uh, which Furgal initially accepted. And then he clarified that he would only do this uh, if he were to lose the election. And that was basically rejecting the Kremlin's offer. He then went on and won the election with, I think, more than 60% of the vote. And uh, I remember several media outlets, including Medusa, uh, then uh, listed possible scenarios that of what might happen to these new opposition or well, systemic opposition governors. The key to understanding why they, what made them opposition governors is that in 2018, we were right after the countrywide protest movement against uh, the government's pension reform. And uh, it was widely regarded that at least partially these uh, United Russia upsets were reaction, in reaction to the government's widely unpopular pension reform. And basically the people, uh, the voters of these four regions said, well, we know that these that these candidates are not actual opposition, but we want to send a message to the Kremlin, and they did. And Furgal, who was actually kind of popular in uh, his own region, expected a, a a sort of a swell of public support to protect him from being removed or being co-opted, and. Uh, and he instead started to like he started to enter into conflicts, as far as we know, with uh, the presidential administration. It, to, today morning, I saw quoted a lot, a lot of places uh, the results of the recent constitutional plebiscite, namely that uh, in the Habarovsk Krai, uh, the vote that he or his administration oversaw uh, saw only a forty odd percent turnout and a sixty percent yes vote, which was among the lowest in the whole country. It is possible, I think, that 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 
the Kremlin was angry at him because of this as well. But honestly, there were other regions. There was uh, Omsk, the Kams- uh, Kamchatki cry that also resisted very low turnout and very low yes votes. So I, it can't be just that. So in my interpretation, what happened was that basically... the. It, his victory and his independent uh, initiatives afterwards introduced a kind of risk, additional risk, unplanned risk into the system that the Kremlin didn't really want. And since the FSB was, as we think, uh, or as we, as it looks now, given an almost free reign in cracking down on any kind of dissent, it was just appropriate that right after the vote, the skeleton would be dragged out of the closet and uh, Furgal would be. Uh, total lesson, which obviously sent a message to the rest of the governors. One thing, I mean, I, I guess I, under, I understand that the Kremlin is just extremely risk averse to these sort of upsets and these even even when the, the, the governor is only nominally oppositionist. I mean, I guess like, how are we supposed to understand somebody like Furgal being, how are we supposed to understand he's actually outside of, he's not, is he, he's never outside the Kremlin's control, it would seem, because he made every effort to I mean, he did enter into some some conflicts or confrontations. I guess he he would he I understand he met with Navalny's local coordinator a few times or at least once, and he attended some protests. And I guess a, a big thing that seems to have upset the balance is also that in last year in 2019, the legislative assembly in the region tipped entirely in favor of LDPR. The power of the party was certainly growing, it seemed to be, with him in, in power. There was, there was initiative or there was momentum. But um, LDPR does what it, it has to do when, they, when they're told, it seems. And so, like, is it literally just the Kremlin refuses to... I mean, it's just their, their operating logic is you can't let that get too far out of hand because something bad will happen? Because, I mean, again, like, it just doesn't seem to me like anything he did ever really rocked the boat other than him just being who he was and being in the office that he was. Yes, I think that's a correct interpretation. So, um, look, I um, so obviously uh, parties themselves are not monolithic. Even though Zhirinovsky would today go out and say the whole LDPR is behind Furgal, that, that doesn't mean that all the LDPR is uh, homogenous across the country. And local chapters will have local interests. Now, this is all fine and well on the, until you take those local interests too far. So, before he was before he was elected governor, Furgal was for many years a Duma deputy and uh, when he was in Moscow, he presumably built a network which uh, he he must have been sure gave him a degree of security. And um, this was this allowed him initially to to sort of uh, reject or this this this, this gave this uh, gave him enough sense of security to reject the Kremlin's offer. I assume what happened afterwards is uh, part of a more is part of a broader broader wave broader process that uh, I've seen uh, developing among uh, Russian governors in recent years is that a, a more and more significant part of uh, uh, more more and more significant proportion of governors 
appeal to public support instead of the real source of their legitimacy, at least what the Kremlin expects them to regard as their real source of legitimacy, which is uh, their relation to first the Baltreds, the uh, presidential representatives who are who oversee uh, several regions, and the Kremlin itself. Constitution also addresses by both by by explicitly forbidding. Uh, talking about or or su- supporting rather separatism of regions from Russia, and also by uh, codifying the sort of s- single construction of uh, hierarchic uh, power from the president all the way down to local leaders. So, in recent years, there were like so. I, I think Furgal, together with a bunch of other regional leaders who are not necessarily opposition or or even uh, systemic opposition leaning have their sin again their sin against the kremlin was really to start building their own base of power start uh, appealing to popular legitimacy in their regions as Furgal did or or to criticize the Kremlin, reject Kremlin, not just offers, but sometimes even orders. In a couple of a couple of months ago during the pandemic, right? Like it's not only that uh, long ago when Putin ordered regions to basically reopen and uh, hold in the uh, Victory Day parades and then hold the vote. That was be- that was a call to duty, and several regions rejected. Or several cities rejected holding those Victory Day parades that were an integral part of the whole choreography of the constitutional plebiscite. And these matter, because if if you look at Putin's source of popularity and source of legitimacy, we have heard a lot about his ratings being much lower than just a couple of years ago. But I think what the real story is there is not, is not his uh, approval ratings, because those will still be high, but his trust ratings that have really fallen to historical lows and have fallen much faster than his uh, than his uh, approval ratings have and that the fact that Putin's trust rating is falling faster to me suggests that people are not are not doubting uh, his um, policies or his uh, his intentions what people are what people have started to doubt is that he uh, is able to make other officials, lower-level officials, carry out his orders. And that is much more dangerous, potentially dangerous to Putin than if people have started to doubt uh, his intentions. So, in a way, Fourgal was a, was a dispensable person uh, who could have, could have been eliminated two years ago when he was elected, almost two years ago when he was elected, right after that. But then, you know, the Kremlin would have raised protests. There wasn't really... The situation didn't seem really dangerous, and right now the dangers do not necessarily come from Furgal himself or the Khabarovsk region that it becomes some sort of uh, beacon of democracy or free thought. No, the the danger is across the that across the board some governors like uh, Vladimir Sipyagin, also an LDPR governor of the Vladimir region, who took office in two thousand and eighteen, and who criticized the Kremlin during openly during the COVID-19 pandemic would start rejecting offers and uh, maybe even carrying out orders. And uh, the system would not be able to run as smoothly as uh, the Kremlin expects it to be. Do you think there's any merit to some of the... I haven't seen this talk much lately, although maybe 
maybe it's uh, circulating again today, but it was definitely, it was a vocal sort of position that I heard two years ago when there were these upset gubernatorial election results, that the Far East is just sort of more unruly and that that's, I mean, again, like there's the commentary in Russia and in Russian politics seems to be forever kind of searching for that great hope that will overthrow Putin. You know, it's it's uh, used to be the office plankton and the middle class. Well, now it's the youth. And maybe two years ago, it was the Far East. And like everybody's constantly looking for that socioeconomic group or geographical area that is going to throw off the, you know, the yoke of the, of the Putin regime or whatever. This is like eternally the... The, like the thing that that the Russia analyst is supposed to divine. What do you think about that that kind of narrative about the Far East? Is it this? Is it a land that can't be tamed? I mean, what are, what are we talking about here? Well, look. So first of all, yes, the I mean, the Far East has definitely a different cultural identity. It is uh, very far from Moscow. It was basically colonized during the centuries, and uh, it is very sparsely populated. People have different problems. At the same time, what I can tell you is that in recent, uh, in in the in the past two decades since Putin has been in power, one of his trademark policies was centralizing uh, power from the regions to Moscow, also power and uh, power and revenues. If you remember, in the nineteen nineties, one of the fears, one of the constant fears in the Russian political establishment was that these regions would simply declare independence. And when Putin came to Moscow in 1998, that, or when he uh, was appointed to serve in the uh, uh, in Yeltsin's presidential administration, those fears were compounded by the uh, Russian financial crisis, which uh, led to uh, several regions withholding money from Moscow and making their own policy initiatives, sometimes even foreign policy initiatives. So there was a realistic chance that, or so they thought in the Kremlin, that these region that this would that the logical next step would be independence. So from the basically the early 2000s on, Putin and the Russian government and success and his Russian governments have uh, centralized both revenues and decision making from the regions to the Kremlin, while governors and regional budgets were asked to implement increasingly expensive policies like Putin's uh, May decrease in 2002, or most recently the national projects, uh, that they simply have no money to do. So this has uh, led to a situation in which a, a local governor is managing the region, but most of the regions are so dependent on uh, transfers from the center, uh, from federal budget that the real power lies not with them, but with uh, the president's representatives and with the, the president himself, obviously. So in Far Eastern regions, which are also geographically and in some cases culturally far from Moscow, the notion that the Muscovites have their own problems and we have our own problems and those people do not understand us, we, uh, we would be better off uh, without them, especially regions with uh, ample energy reserves and, uh, and, and mineral reserves, they found an an audience. And uh, to some extent, these voices came up in the 2018 electoral campaigns too. So it was not only the pension reform, the pension reform certainly served as a catalyst, but uh, yes, 
these um, sort of views of, of, of not maybe not resentment, but certainly distance from Moscow have been shaping local politics for years. So perhaps in the in the case of uh, in the case of the Khabarovsk cry, these added a further for, these added further instability and a further risk to what Furgal would do if he is left unchecked. But in my opinion, the main reason for his detention was to send a message to not just Far Eastern regions, but also uh, regional governors across Russia who, who in the past couple of months felt like they had a little a higher degree of independence from Moscow because they were left to their own devices during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, the message is that even if you, even if you are well regarded and if you have a you have popular support we can still come for you we can still uh find uh the, the skeletons in your closet and don't feel safe don't feel like you can do uh you can you can uh, reject an offer if, if, if we make you one i think also uh arresting Furgal at the same time as arresting the journalists uh, allows the Kremlin to sort of poison the conversation around the journalists, right? Because if, um, first of all, uh, authoritarian regimes in Russia, as well as in my home country... Just a note to listeners, he's talking about Hungary. ...have, um, or they like to pretend that journalists are, in fact, political operators, that they are the same thing. They are against the government, they are, they are shady people, they uh, commit crimes against their country. Maybe journalists do not kill people, but they, in this particular case, give away state secrets, right? So if, if you arrest a bunch of journalists whose, whose crime was that they were doing their job, and if you arrest a politician with an actually shady past, and uh, you suddenly have a huge campaign for that, that, that sort of uh, mixes uh, Fourgal's arrest and the journalist's arrest and says these are all symptoms of the same repression, then you can diffuse the protests and you can say, well... No, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, I've noticed even even today, you know, in the, in the less than 24 hours since Fourgal was arrested... It's been that there's, I mean, I, the, the Safronov stuff is like getting drowned out a little bit at least. And like, it definitely, like they are both headline news right now. And so it's like, oh, have you heard about the big criminal case? It's like, oh, the one, the one about the journalist or the one about the exactly. corrupt governor. It's like, I, I don't know, whatever, you know, both of them, <laughs> like they're kind of like swished together now. Yes, exactly. And you have, you have the, I think the head of the local LDPR chapter uh, has posted uh, Yame, uh, Sergei Furgal, which is, Again, like yeah, they're they're co-opting the yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a bit, and it's it's really really hard to dissociate because it is in a way the same uh, the manifestation of the same repressive system, but of course the subjects are very different. So uh, in 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 that sense as well, uh, I think it's a clever it's a potentially clever PR move uh, in addition to its being a message to regional leaders. That's my interview with Andras Tatsifra, a political analyst based in New York and the author of the No Yardstick blog. It's an excellent resource. I recommend everybody go check it out. 
you can check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to that blog. If you enjoyed this interview, and if you like listening to this podcast, please consider skipping over to patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock. I've now got two membership tiers, as they're called. For $10 a month, you'll get a set of custom stickers displaying the show's special artwork. And for $20 a month, whew, you can receive a coffee mug with an even specialer, more exclusive logo featuring the sketch of the Russia guy's original logo. It's fantastic, let me tell you. Thank you to everybody already pitching in, and I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter, if ever you've, uh, or you can email me, whatever. Go to my, do if you find me, I'm out there. If ever you've a comment, or a question about the show, or a suggestion, anything, anything you want. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. Говорят мы пеки пуки, как выносит на земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля. Ой ля ля, ой ля ля.